midst of a battle. Uh, God is battling for the souls and bodies of his people in the book of Exodus. And he's been preparing us for it. He's been preparing Moses for it. Last week he even prepared his antagonist, Pharaoh, for it. And uh, today the battle begins. And uh, it's a rather unconventional one as battles go. Uh, we won't read the first volley, uh, the first assault, if you will, but the second assault uh, begins with a, an assault of frogs. That's right, I shall assault you with frogs. And uh, you know, if that's strange, it just sort of gets stranger from there. Uh, we are studying the plagues. And if you look up there and say, wow, it's a lot of stuff. What I'm doing in uh, these four chapters is sort of summarizing the main themes of nine of the plagues. Actually, I'm not going to talk about all nine of them. I'm only going to take three or four of them, but summarize the things that repeat over and over that are the main themes of the battle, what we're supposed to take away from these things. Until the last plague comes, we'll deal with that separately. All right, I'm going to read uh, that. And, uh, you know, actually, there's a lot of stuff you're thinking, oh, my gosh, it'll take forever. Actually, this is a battle. A little crazy, but it should read quickly. It should be sort of interesting, and uh, follow along as you can. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. He refuses. God plagues them with frogs. Uh, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh, as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you, and your servants, and your people, and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward he will let you go from here. 
When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we have before us uh, what seem to our 21st century Western ears very strange things. Uh, and we pray tonight, Lord, that you would show us great things about yourself in this text and help us to respond appropriately, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So uh, you may have seen it. Man, YouTube's wonderful, isn't it? So if you haven't seen it, you can find it. Uh, there's a video of a young man playing a violin in a DC, busy DC uh, metro station. And uh, as is often the case, you see this here in Oakland, certainly in Squirrel Hill. Someone sits on the sidewalk and plays. And if they play relatively well, someone may stop for a few minutes. A few people stop and drop you know, a few dollars here and there. But for the most part, the video, which is four minutes long, it's compressed four hours or something like that. It's what you'd expect. Busy people making a little time to listen to this guy play. That's not surprising, is it? The surprising thing is the player is Joshua Bell, a violinist of unrivaled skill. He's playing a Stradivarius, rare, precious violin. And he was playing a piece of indisputably difficult music that very few people in the world could play. And of course, no one recognized it. Uh, we can be in the presence of greatness, of someone or something that should astound us, that should elicit praise from us, and fail to recognize it altogether. And uh, in some ways, I think we're just like that with our text tonight and these plagues. What do we do with the plagues? I mean, if you're a Christian, you've read these and you're like, oh, they're plagues. And if you're not a Christian, you're just, what, what in the world is this? And uh, what I want to tell us tonight is this is something that's utterly amazing and astounding that God's doing. And we should be amazed. We should praise him. Uh, why should we praise the God of the plagues? Because it shows us that there's no one like him. Tonight we're going to see there's no one like the Lord. And we're going to look at that by uh, talking about two things. He's an unrivaled king, and there's indisputable evidence of that in the plagues. An unrivaled king, and there's indisputable evidence. So the unrivaled king, the Lord, is at work in these nine plagues. And again, we only read a few of them here. Uh, doing some pretty interesting things. Uh, again, I said it was a strange battle and a strange means of warfare. But what we have God doing here is controlling chaos. So in, you know, I made a point earlier, this is Moses' second book. It's a continuation of the first book. At the beginning of the first book, this God does something called creation. And Genesis basically explains that God makes order out of chaos. Creation is God turning chaos into beautiful, ordered creation. And here what God's doing is turning that backwards. He's reversing creation and bringing chaos madness out of creation. He is uh, doing this with frogs and gnats and flies. And uh, the first plague, the one we read of frogs, uh, we see that in chapter 8, verse 2, God is calling frogs up out of the Nile. We didn't read all the verses, but the Nile is the heart of the Egyptian nation. It's their pride. It's the center of their commerce. It's sort of the center of their faith in some ways. And uh, God calls the plague, the first plague, from the Nile. Yeah, actually, that's a low blow. And it only gets worse from there because God's saying, not only do I own your river, and I'll bring curses on you from that, 
But let's go on and let me show you what else I own. So in the second plague, gnats brings gnats out of the dust. And in the third plague, flies, he just creates them out of the air. In other words, God's saying, I can do to you whatever I want. And you think this is your land, but I own all of creation. And I can undo it. And I can start it, and I can stop these plagues whenever I want. God is controlling chaos. He's unleashing it on them as an act of condemnation. Now, if you read through these things, you may actually come to the point where you're thinking, wow, poor Egyptians, poor Pharaoh. Uh, You haven't read the text very well, especially the first couple chapters. Do you remember the genocide? Do you remember the order to throw the Hebrew babies into the river and kill them all? Do you remember that? Maybe you didn't read it, but that's what happened. Uh, Pharaoh is the anti-God of this text. God has told his people to be fruitful and multiply and be a blessing to the nations, and Pharaoh said, no. Not only can you not leave and establish your own land like you're supposed to and be a blessing to the nations, but I'm actually going to control you and own you and keep you from multiplying and control you, and if I need to, I'll kill you. And he did that. Uh, Pharaoh is the anti-God opposed to Israel. And God is unleashing in him, in these plagues, condemnation. He's actually slowly destroying Egypt. And in doing so, he's showing that he's in complete control. Now, I I hinted a couple weeks ago that uh, the Egyptian Pharaoh was supposed to have some sense of deity. He was sort of a son of the gods. And one of his responsibilities was to control creation. Because in an agricultural society, it's very important that the rainy season comes when it's supposed to and crops should come in. He's responsible for these things, or they felt like he was. And uh, God here is uh, basically saying, you're, you're not in control. You never were. Abs- Actually, I'm in absolute control. In chapter 8, verse 22, he says, I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And that word is actually means land as well. It could mean the whole earth, or it could mean this land. And I think in this text it means this land. God's saying, right here in the midst of this land, your land that you think is your backyard, Egypt, I'm in complete control. It's mine. I'm in complete and utter control. And this is where he says, I'm going to send a plague, and uh, I'm going to send flies over there to torment you. You'll have flies in your hair. But my people that live over here, there'll be no flies. You can check it out. That's how controlled I am. I can send flies wherever I want to to do anything I want to. And I'm so in control, actually, he goes on and says in 9.16, that you, Pharaoh, you who dismissed me, who refused to listen to me, who asked, who is the Lord, uh, I'm only keeping you in this game for my purposes. Seriously. I, I could have cut you off by now. He says that. I could have cut you off. The fight could have been over. Um, but here's the deal. I'm keeping you up against the ropes. I'm not letting you go down because I'm using you. 9.16. For this purpose, I've raised you up, to show you my glory, that the world may know. Uh, Pharaoh, I know you think you're in control, but I'm actually, I'm actually in complete control of this fight, and I'm using you. Uh, one of my another favorite YouTube clips that's been a sensation recently is a video of um, Bruce Lee uh, playing ping pong. Maybe you've seen this. He's playing ping pong with two because uh, he actually plays one guy and sort of beats him, and then they pull another guy in. Two really great ping-pong players. And uh, he's holding his own. That's not what was remarkable. What's remarkable is he's doing it with a pair of nunchucks. What? Yeah. He, they're playing with ping-pong paddles at the table, two of them, and he's standing five feet off the table with a pair of nunchucks, spinning around behind his back, not watching. It's like something from The Matrix. Seriously, it's like something from The Matrix. It's amazing. And uh, in some ways, what God is doing here is saying... Sort of like Bruce Lee. I'll play your game in your backyard, and I'll use whatever tool you want, and I'll beat you at it. God's saying, Egypt, 
Pharaoh, that's your land. You're supposed to be God of this land. You're supposed to control this. These deities that rule your land. They're nothing. I'm the real king. I'll come into your backyard. I'll play your game. We'll see who the real king is. God is the unrivaled king. Now, how does this apply to us? It's an important question to ask. This is a long time ago. The Egyptians were polytheistic. They had lots of gods. We're either, for the most part, monotheists or atheists. They had this cruel dictator. We don't have a cruel dictator. Uh, So how does this apply to us, this idea that God is unrivaled? Well, the problem is that God does have rivals in our lives. They may not be bigger and better gods out there. They may not be pharaohs that claim our souls and our lives. That doesn't mean there aren't nearer and dearer gods in here, right? Just because there aren't bigger, better gods out there vying in competition with the real God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, it doesn't mean in our own hearts there aren't real gods saying, serve me, love me, give me your life. We have often nearer and dearer gods in our hearts, gods that we prefer, gods that we serve, gods that we fear. Yeah, we talk about these under the names of idols sometimes, and because uh, they're not they're not true gods, not real gods. But you know, here's some ways of thinking about it. If you pursue or serve, as is likely the case if you're in college, doesn't it's a blanket statement. But if you serve and pursue the god of success, it's likely that you fear failure or being a failure. If you serve or pursue the God of youth and beauty, not only looking nice, but actually being in shape, it's likely that you fear the reality of death. And you're thinking, I don't ever think about death. No, you you fear getting old and ugly, (laughs) which is what happens before you die, slowly, but it happens. Really, you fear death. I'm serious. You try to stay young, you're trying to stay young forever. It's the Peter Pan syndrome. You don't ever want to get old and die. If you serve and pursue the God of sex, there's all kinds of things that you might fear, but one of them is loneliness. You find the closest thing to real intimacy that you can get, and that's about it. Underneath all these many gods, there's one. It's us. We're the rival God. It's self-interest. We are usually the rival king for God's affections, for serving the Lord. And, uh, you know, listen to yourself, listen to each other, and you'll hear it. If your problems are the biggest problems, if your successes are the biggest successes, if your fears are the biggest fears, um, that means somehow God is very small to you. And you're very big in your own life. C.S. Lewis writes, The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as rather small. It's better to forget about yourself altogether. He's not saying you forget to like bathe and eat, but he's saying there's a way of living life in which you know, because you serve God, that he's taking care of you so you can forget about being the own God that rules and runs your life, and you simply trust him. And because you trust an unrivaled king, you can actually forget about yourself. So who are you exalting? And if you don't know, you can ask someone, what's coming out of my mouth? 
do I sound like I'm all about myself? And if you have good friends, they'll tell you, yes, often you sound like the only thing that matters to you is your grades and your success and what people think of you. So. Uh, we have an unrivaled king, and he also provides indisputable evidence of that. This point's going to go quickly. Uh, it's indisputable evidence that he's out to show. He shows it. That's what he says to Pharaoh. By now, chapter 9, 15, and 16, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants to show Pharaoh his power. And by the end of this book, Pharaoh will actually know something about the Lord. It won't do him much good, but he will learn something. Not only Pharaoh, but all the earth. There's a global aspect. God is saying, Pharaoh, I'm keeping you in this game so I can build up a resume to show the nations. When my people walk out, everyone in the world is going to know who I am because of what I've done. And uh, not only that, we keep reading, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, says to Moses, I'm doing this so that your sons and grandsons will know. It's not just that this knowledge should go deep into the heart. It's not just that it should go wide into all the world. It's also that it should go long throughout all eternity. This is the God, the unrivaled God, who saves his people with great power. He wants to be known. He's showing it. And he has it recorded for us in his word so that we can know him. It's a God that wants to be known. And we see in our text that he's actually seen. God is out to show himself, and people do see it. Pharaoh doesn't see it. He's He's dull, he's hard-hearted, we'll talk about him. But other people see it. In 819, the magicians, Pharaoh's sort of uh, court-appointed miracle workers, if you will, they sort of kept pace with Moses for a trick or two. And uh, by trick number three, they said, we're out of this game. This is the finger of God. Now, they didn't know who this God was a minute ago. They're saying, "This, this is God. No one does what he just did. We don't know what's going on. And from here on, uh, you see them sort of wafering to the point where at the end of chapter 11, verse 3, uh, we see the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. God raises Moses' estimation by his wonder-working ability such that the magicians and other people in Egypt are saying, maybe something to this. Moses at times gives them warnings. This plague's coming, and uh, if you've got any kind of sense, you believe me, uh, you can take shelter. Some of the Egyptians take shelter. And it's also read later on that when Israel leaves, they leave with a mixed multitude. What does that mean? Well, it means some Egyptians in the midst of this say, we think we've seen the real and living God, and we're going to go with you. That's what happens. God shows himself, and some people see it. So it's important for us, I mean, to to see as Christians, and if you're not here as a Christian, this is important for you to hear, that we think this really happened. I think this really happened. It's it's common uh, today to try to read the Bible and take away all the hard, maybe messy historical stuff that we don't like and just take the moral kernels. Of course, we get to define what's moral and keep it for ourselves. Uh, Not only can you not do that because the book doesn't, meant doesn't mean to be read that way but frankly you're making yourself the god of the text deciding what's in and what's not and uh, that's just not christianity um some of us maybe in this room but certainly in our culture think 
faith is just this thing where, well, it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not because it's just faith, but there's no fact, and that's good because you don't have any. And so uh, it's good that you read this stuff and you believe it, but, you know, man, that didn't really happen, did it? And Christianity says it really happened. And if it didn't really happen, you shouldn't believe it. That didn't really happen. If God didn't really speak, if God didn't really act, if God didn't really reveal himself, if God didn't really show himself, there's no reason to believe this. There's no reason to be here. Go somewhere else and do something else. But if it's true, if it's fact, if God really has spoken and been seen and wants to reveal himself and can reveal himself, then we better stop and consider. Maybe this is the real, true, unrivaled God, and we should think about this more seriously. God wants to be known. He's shown himself. He's given us evidence for it. So um, an illustration for how perhaps you're thinking, um, how do I see it? Like God's shown it, but how do I see it? You see what I'm saying? Uh, you're saying he's shown me all these things in this text, but it's like crazy madness to me. It's just weird plagues. How do I see that God's really an unrivaled king? Um, you're, you're making these claims, but and I, maybe I, I grew up in the church, and I just don't see it. Uh, coming to know something like this, coming to know that Yahweh is the living king, is sort of like uh, those old magic eye pictures, posters. Do you know what I'm talking about? So those posters you would see hanging on a wall, and it looked like just broken up pixelated trash, like different colors pixelated, and it, you're thinking, what is that? And then someone would say, what you need to do is you need to like walk up to it and put your nose on it, which I don't know why they do that. I think they're making you look stupid. And then you need to come back 15 feet and just stare at it in one single spot. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, I haven't seen them in a long time, so I might be dating myself. And uh, what's supposed to happen, and I think this might be only if you're on drugs, is some picture <laughs> reveals itself to you. Oh, it's Abraham Lincoln, and they walk away. Now, frankly, I never saw any of those things ever. Like, I, I never, ever, ever saw one of those. Something wrong with my brain. So I'll give you another example. And you do this every single day. It's just it's the, it's how we come to see and know things. Um, so yesterday, I told some of you, I saw Stephen Adams, and I meant to ask him if he was a wrestler, because I thought it was so funny. Um, but, you know, I've never seen Stephen Adams within five feet. But... Our brains have this remarkable ability to recognize from a distance facial features and put names to it. And we do this so quickly. What we do is our eyes and our brains lock in and begin to assemble facts. The shape of the nose, the shape of the brow, the depth of the cheekbone, the shape of the ears, the haircut. Frankly, this is what your brain is doing every time you recognize someone. It's putting thousands of pieces of information together and saying, that's, no it's not. Yes it is. Sometimes you make mistakes. Like, I thought she was running today and I was wrong. But... For the most part, that's how we recognize people. And so, this is the way it is when we come to recognize the living God. Do you have enough facts, and can you see clearly that he is the real and living God? And if you can't, there's a couple of possibilities why that may be. Uh, and this, I'm, I'm just going to call this unbelief. If you can't rightly, clearly see that God is the unrivaled king. And I'm talking about this to both Christians and non-Christians. Because non-Christians, if you're here, it's great. If you're just trying to figure out what this is all about, that's great. Non-belief is a part of life. You're not believing. That's, it's okay. We're working through it. It's also a part of your life if you're a, a Christian, because none of us believe like we're supposed to. And sometimes, frankly, you just fail to believe. Like Most of our sin, deep down at the heart of it, is unbelief. We don't believe like we should. So we need to work through this, too. Uh, what can we do to see better? 
Well, number one, if you don't see well, you should check your eyes, right? You should check to see if something's wrong with your eyes. You should examine yourself. And there's two ways, perhaps, in which uh, your eyesight is bad spiritually. One is that you have a stubborn refusal to obey. So Pharaoh can't see that Yahweh is the living God. And part of his problem is he just refuses to listen. How many times did I read, let my people go? A gazillion times. I mean, it's a simple, clear obedience. Simple command, let my people go. And he refuses. And um, frankly, a staunch antagonistic relationship to God where you simply refuse to do what God says is not a very uh, unbiased place to begin a relationship. You, you will simply never really come to see God rightly and trust him if you refuse to obey him. It's just true. And this is true for you as Christians as well. You sometimes have trouble believing God's good. Well, is that because you refuse to obey him? You have a stubborn, antagonistic refusal to obey him. You're just not going to see him clearly. And this is rooted in a second problem. Are you refusing to humble yourself? This is uh, Pharaoh's problem. Moses comes to him and says, Hey, God, likes, God would like to know how much longer are you going to refuse to humble yourself? Another place, the text says, uh, Pharaoh, you keep exalting yourself against my people. I could have crushed you by now, but you keep exalting yourself. This is Pharaoh's problem. It's pride, and it's our problem too. And pride and belief and the living God, they're antithetical. We just can't be proud people and really have a thick, trusting relationship to the Lord. C.S. Lewis again, In God you come up against something which is in every way, in every respect, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Did you catch that? I mean, he's basically saying, if you're a prideful person and you think you're the... If you go about life like you are God, knowing everything looking down on everything, you will simply never have the clear-headed, objective perspective to realize there are people and, yes, a God in this world who's superior to you. Uh, pride is blinding. There's a third option that you can't see well. One, there may be something wrong with your sight. Secondly, you just may need more information. You may need a clearer picture. And Scripture provides that for you. Scripture is your glasses. It is your lens to see more clearly what God is like. And of all the stories and of all the places and of all the people in Scripture, the clearest story is the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, if you want to meet the unrivaled king, read the Bible. Keep coming to this series on Exodus. But say the person of Jesus. It's an unrivaled king. There's no one like him. Read this. I don't care where you're coming from. Read the story. You'll agree. There was no one like him. No one lived a life like him. Very few people claimed the things he claimed. Some of them were crazy. No one did the things he did to back it up besides himself. He did in every way show himself master of creation and redemption. He did things that should not have been done. And I don't mean like immoral things. I mean like bringing people from the dead. And then he himself, he himself was undone. He allowed himself to be undone. He received condemnation. 
He took judgment. He experienced the chaos of death, of life being undone. And he did this before a watching world. He lived before a watching world. He went to the cross before a watching world. And he provided indisputable evidence that God was real and that he was here for us to see and know. And then he reversed creation again. People aren't supposed to rise from the dead. When you're dead, you're dead, right? He rose from the dead. He appeared before many witnesses to show us there's an unrivaled king who rules over all creation, who wants to save his people, and we can know him. He does this so that we may know him and serve him, be saved by him. Yeah. So that knowing him, we can praise him, exalt him, because there's no one like him. All right, let's pray together.